Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Program, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Joseph Nye Jr., the author of Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. Uh, Joseph Nye is known as a great scholar. It, he, he has done so many things in the government. He is known as one of the most influential foreign policy advisors over the last uh, decades. And uh, it's really a great pleasure that we have you here today to talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, George. It's nice to be uh, in San Francisco. And I know that uh, people often say things like that when they're visiting um, and they don't really mean it. But if you were from New England at this time of year, you'd know I mean it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, this book that I've written, Do Morals Matter?, uh, which has kind of an odd title, a question mark in the title. Uh, people say, you know, by and large, they don't in international relations, that uh, the, the conventional wisdom is that uh, uh, it's really all national interest and moral views are are like icing that uh, a leader pours on the cake to make it look pretty, but it's uh, national interests that bake the cake. And my experience in working in government, as well as in reading and writing some history, was that view is not accurate. That if you don't realize that sometimes the moral view of the president was an essential ingredient in the cake, not just icing sprinkled on top to make it look pretty, you're going to get history wrong. And so one of the reasons that I wrote this book was to look at the 14 presidents who have led us in foreign policy since 1945 and to ask, did it matter what their moral views were? So the book has two purposes. One is to answer the question of the title. Historically, did it matter? And I think I come up with demonstrations of the answer, yes. And the other part is, okay, if it matters, how should we think about it? So these are the two purposes of the book. Let me just take a minute or two on the first question, proving that morals matter, that they were an ingredient, not just... Uh, icing on the cake. Uh, and I'll give you the example of Harry Truman. Harry Truman was a, uh, uh, a very simple man, a farm boy who never went to college, uh, but had strong sense of self of what he thought was right or wrong. And yet when Truman was faced with the question of should you drop a nuclear weapon on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he did. And he said in his memoirs, he didn't lose much sleep over it. But people often stop the story there. For example, there was a famous uh, philosopher at Oxford 
moral philosopher who refused to go to the ceremony at Oxford in 1948 in which Truman was given an honorary degree. And she said she could never go to a ceremony for somebody who had dropped the atomic bomb. But what people don't realize is the next steps in the story. For example, in 1945, there was another bomb ready to be dropped. And Truman said no, he was not going to allow the military to drop the third bomb. And the reason is that he didn't want to kill any more women and children. So he was quite a quick learner in terms of bringing about his moral views on this. But even more impressive was what he did in 1950 when he was losing the war in Korea. The Chinese had crossed the Yalu River, had pushed the Americans down the peninsula, almost into the sea in the south. And he was told that if he lost this war, the war was stalemated, it would uh, destroy his presidency. He couldn't run for re-election in 52. And he knew that. And Douglas MacArthur, who was the World War II hero, the general who was in charge of uh, the Far East Theater, told Truman, if you allow me to drop 25 to 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities... I will win this war for you. And Truman said, no. He said, nope, I'm not going to kill that many more women and children. And that's quite interesting because it did have a very negative effect on his presidency. But if you want to ask what the world would look like if Truman had decided differently, if he decided to further his personal interest and political interest or a view of the national interest that included using nuclear weapons as normal everyday weapons rather than just for deterrence, uh, the world would look very different today. And when Thomas Schelling, the Nobel Prize laureate, was giving his Nobel address, Schelling said the most important thing that happened in the past 70 years was the development of the nuclear taboo, that the nuclear weapons were to be used just for deterrence and not for war fighting. Imagine if Truman had not done that, if his moral views had not been one of the key ingredients of the cake of how we define national interest. Uh, it would be a very different world that we live in today. The world would look very, very different. So that's, I would submit, an example of how the moral views of a president made a huge difference in terms of allowing uh, a one world to develop rather than a very different world that might have developed. So if, if and I think I make more cases than just the Truman case in the book, but I'm not going to belabor them uh, this evening, but if we've demonstrated that nuclear weapons are an example, what about other moral issues? And if moral issues are crucial, then how should we think about them? When I served in the 
State Department some years ago. Uh, I remember dealing with a, uh, a nuclear negotiation, and I turned to one of my French uh, uh, interlocutors, and I said, what do you think about the moral issues that are involved in this question of nuclear proliferation? And he said, I don't think one has to worry about morality. There is no international morality. The only thing I concern myself with is the interests of France. And I don't think he ever realized what a profound moral judgment he had just made. In other words, he had just retreated into this view that it's the national interest that matters and nothing else. But Americans sometimes aren't much better when we sort of look at um, actions and we say, how do we justify them or what's the way we judge them? Very often uh, we tend to say, well, we're a good people, so if we did it, it must be good, which is, of course, a non sequitur. Or it turned out all right, so it must be good, which is also a non sequitur. And what I try to do in the book is to make an argument that when you're dealing with complex moral issues, as you find in international relations, you need to think in three dimensions. I call it 3D morality. You have to consider the motives, the means, and the consequences, and then try to balance all three in an assessment of the actions. Uh, that is a perhaps illustrated or illustrable by a simple example, uh, metaphor, if you want, uh, which I will describe for you now. Imagine that your daughter was about to take the SATs and she was going to a high school dance on a Friday night and a friend says, I know she has to get home early, and uh, I will drive her home from the dance, and I'll make sure she's home early. And your friend, in driving her home, doesn't pay attention to the fact that the road has iced up and is driving at 80 miles an hour, skids off the road, and hits a tree, and your daughter is killed. Would you say to him, oh, I forgive you, your intentions were good? Or would you say you used inappropriate means and had horrible consequences and didn't pay enough attention to the prospect that those consequences, even though unintended, could occur? And I think you can make the same kind of argument when we deal with some international events. For example, when... George W. Bush, Bush 43, invaded Iraq in 2003. Many people said his motives were bad. I don't agree with that. People say Bush lied and boys died. I think, in fact, Bush was concerned about Saddam Hussein developing nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. That was broadly uh, assessed the same way by most of the world's intelligence agencies. And I think Bush also thought that if he could democratize Iraq, he could uh, remove the roots of terrorism. And so let's grant him 
good motives. But if you look at the means he used, they were inadequate. What he did was plunge in with the military, which allowed him to remove Saddam Hussein, but it didn't allow him to democratize Iraq or reconstruct Iraq. And there were many papers that were prepared in the State Department and in the intelligence community warning about the difficulties of reconstruction in Iraq, and they were ignored. The White House tossed them aside. And the net effect in terms of consequences was you had stimulation of a civil war between Shia and Sunnis and the strengthening of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which eventually morphed into the Islamic State. So horrific consequences. I would argue that's quite similar to that little road accident example I gave, and that we can judge by all three dimensions. Bush's press secretary, Ari Fleischer, said that Bush's actions on Iraq were marked by wonderful moral clarity because he spoke of his freedom agenda. And what I'm saying is if you look at three dimensions, not just your motives or your intentions, but also the means and the consequences, you'll say that the action was not a moral action. And that we've got to, as a people, be more honest with ourselves as we look at these questions of what is a moral policy. Now, if you look a little deeper at the issue of motives and intentions, almost all politicians will say they have good intentions. After all, that's how they get elected. But their intentions, as stated, may be twisted or diverted from where they start by their emotional needs, their motives may be a little different than their stated intentions. And a good example of this is the case of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, the stated intentions of both, let's say, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson were to prevent North Vietnam from imposing a totalitarian system upon South Vietnam. Uh, and you could say, all right, that could be seen as a good intention. But when you put that through the emotional motives of the two presidents, you get something a little different. Kennedy never allowed the total number of troops to go above 16,000, and he called them advisors. Johnson, of course, let the number go up to 565,000, and that led to American deaths in Vietnam of 58,000. So quite a different set of consequences. About 160 Americans died in Vietnam while Kennedy was president, as opposed to some 30,000 while Johnson was president. Now, McGeorge Bundy, who was a hawk on Vietnam and an advisor to both Kennedy and Johnson, uh, was asked after he'd retired, what would have happened if Kennedy had not been assassinated? And what Bundy said is he thought Kennedy would have found some excuse to withdraw 
after his re-election. Johnson, on the other hand, did just the opposite, as I mentioned. And Bundy's answer for that is he said Kennedy emotionally wanted to be seen as smart. Johnson emotionally wanted to be seen as not a coward. His background in Texas, the need to appear macho, uh, the image of what he thought his father would have wanted from him, meant that Johnson knew that the war was not going well, but couldn't face the prospect of being the man who lost Vietnam. And that emotional need twisted his intentions and motives to something which turned out to be a disaster. So when we look at motives and intentions, we have to look not just at the statements, but also the way the emotional intelligence of the president uh, may or may not twist them in one direction or another. Similarly, when we look at means, we have to realize that sometimes it's inevitable that a political leader is going to have to use um, means that we would not want to tolerate in our personal behavior. Uh, for example, uh, a you might say when you're choosing a friend or a roommate or a spouse, uh, somebody who said, I will not kill, is kind of a nice characteristic. <laughs> On the other hand, when it comes to voting for president, I would find it hard to vote for a perfect pacifist who would say, under no circumstances will I allow soldiers to be used. Because there may be circumstances in which to protect the people who elected you, you have to go against your own internal motives of thou shalt not kill and admit that in a world that's difficult, you sometimes have to allow this type of behavior. Uh, I think in that case, uh, you'll find that uh, the circumstances in which a president uses or doesn't use force uh, should be guided by something that's called just war theory, which has come down to us through the centuries from the dilemma that Augustine wrestled with in the 4th century A.D., but it's become secularized and now plays or forms the basis for international humanitarian law, and domestically, it's the basis for the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which all our military is supposed to live by. And what Augustine faced in the 4th century was the dilemma that as the Roman Empire began to break down and disorder occurred, if the good did not protect themselves, the bad would prevail. And so Augustine said, the Bible tells me thou shalt not kill. But if I tell my parishioners, my flock, to perfectly obey that, then they will be eliminated and only the bad will prevail. So he developed a set of principles as to when you'd be allowed to violate the rule, thou shalt not kill. And it had to do with a very narrow definition of self-defense. 
If somebody was coming at you to kill you, you could kill your, him in self-defense. But notice that, that that means when you get to modern uniform code of military justice, if somebody's running at you shooting and you're shooting back, but then he stops and drops his rifle and throws up his hands, you can no longer shoot him, even though 30 seconds ago you could. And the reason, according to Augustine, is he's no longer an imminent threat to you. And therefore, there is a new principle, which is the question of self-defense based on an imminent threat. That then adds other conditions, such as when you are fighting with large groups, that you distinguish between civilians and non-civilians, and that you keep a sense of proportion, so that if you see that there's a terrorist in an apartment building that has 70 families in it, and you know you can drop a bomb on that building and kill the terrorist, you'll accomplish your goal, but you'll kill 70 families as well, that's disproportionate means, and that's not acceptable. And then finally, there has to be a reasonable prospect of success. So in that sense, this tradition that has come down to us through the ages has set some limits on the extreme uses of force. Now, there are circumstances where you say, what if it is so bad that I have no choice? What if it is a matter of survival? And there are cases that are like that. When the Germans drove the British into the sea at Dunkirk in 1940, uh, Winston Churchill feared for the survival of the British islands. Uh, he knew that if the French Navy, which had now belonged to German-occupied France, was added to the German Navy, it would undercut the ability of the British to Navy to defend the islands. And what he did, which is quite awful in some ways, is he bombed his ally, the French fleet, and killed something like 1,300 French sailors. But his feeling was that it was a matter of survival for the British people, that they had voted for him to protect them, and he had to conduct this very immoral act as a way for survival. So there may be some circumstances in international affairs where because there's no higher government and no enforceable law, that bad actions in terms of personal behavior uh, are acceptable in international politics. Uh, Philosophers sometimes call this the problem of dirty hands, that you can't have pure, clean hands if you're protecting other people, if you're their trustee. But there's a big difference between saying such circumstances may arise from time to time and saying that that means we can justify any action. And an example of this, I would submit, is questions of human rights where people will often say, well, we can't do anything to defend human rights 
because it's a tough world out there. So, for example, when the Saudi government dismembered Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who lived in Washington, dismembered him in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, President Trump's reaction was, well, we have interest in oil, we have interest in arms sales, and it's a tough world out there. We just got to get over it. And he was treating the dismemberment of Khashoggi as though it was like Churchill defending the British islands against Hitler capturing the French fleet. It wasn't. And to compress that as though there are no differences is an enormous cop-out in morality. Uh, even the Wall Street Journal, a conservative uh, editorial board, condemned the president for not defending American values in a case like that. And finally, before I turn to um, concluding, uh, one has to also ask, are presidents, as they make their decisions on morality, are they thinking not just of particular actions, but of the effect on the system as a whole in the long run? In other words, are they thinking of institutions or not? Philosophers will sometimes distinguish what's called act utilitarianism from rule utilitarianism. An act utilitarian says, on this particular action, what's the greatest good for the greatest number? And those are the consequences. A rule utilitarian would say, in addition to that calculation of what's the greatest good for the greatest number in this particular case, if I wind up breaking a lot of rules, what's that going to do for the future greatest good of the greatest number. And that's a very important aspect of international relations in foreign policy. There is a tendency in textbooks on international relations to say that because it's anarchic, there's no higher government, there's a strong incentive to cheat. And there's a game that's sometimes called prisoner's dilemma, where if one prisoner squeals on the other, uh, he'll get off free, and the other prisoner squeals, then the other one will, he'll be told he'll get off free, but they both go to jail. So there's a strong incentive to cheat in this game. But there was a test done by a political scientist named Robert Axelrod at the University of Michigan, who said, if you play this game once, you're very likely to cheat. But if you keep playing the game again and again and again, and you're going to be playing with the same people over a long period of time, you learn that the best strategy is actually reciprocity. You cheat on me, I cheat on you. You cooperate with me, I cooperate with you. And after time, you realize that you're better off in the long run if you develop this cooperation. Axelrod called that the long shadow of the future, that how you play each round of the game can be affected not just by the incentives of that round, but on the long-term outcome of the game. And in that sense, I think what we're seeing in American foreign policy nowadays is that while the early founding presidents thought hard about creating alliances and institutions and structures which would create a long shadow of the future. 
we now tend to be backing away from that and treating everything as single transactions. And I think that leaves us the worse off over the long run. So the issues of how you think about consequences become quite complicated when you have to take into account not just each individual action, but the cumulative effect over time. Secretary of State George Shultz, uh, who was secretary under Ronald Reagan, said, we have to think of foreign policy not as a set of transactions in a bazaar or market, but more like growing a garden. You weed a little here, you trim there, you hoe there, but it's for a long term that you try to develop this garden. And that is a major part of what we want to see in terms of an ethical foreign policy. So when I summarize this and I try to say, looking back over the 14 presidents since 1945, how do I think they scored when I compare or add up motives, means, and consequences, all three dimensions of making moral judgments? I come out with the four best in my scoring as Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush. The four worst are Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, the second President Bush, Bush 43, and tentatively, because we don't know the outcome yet, uh, President Trump. Uh, though I would give him a note that says incomplete but needs further attention. <laughs> but the point of this is not that my scoring of these presidents is accurate or inaccurate. Uh, what I really care about is that as people think about morality and foreign policy, they don't fall for shortcuts like his intentions were good or he had moral clarity in his speeches, or it turned out well, so it's okay. Uh, but instead, think in these three dimensions and say that we can, as we make these judgments, do a better job than we've been doing so far. Why should we care? And that goes back to the title of the book, Do Morals Matter? We should care because morals do matter, and therefore, we should be careful about how we make our moral judgments in foreign affairs. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I have one, one big consequences question. Um, we have a technology that's ahead of most other militaries, including the way we use our drones. And I was wondering if it's efficient. We don't lose our, our soldiers as often. But is the use of, of outweighted technology, which is always the way people have won wars, is it a bad long-term consequence that we look like we're not playing fair? Well, that's been charged from time to time. But ironically, 
what drones have done uh, is actually improve the conditions for just war theory. In the past, if you were flying an F-16 over uh, Sarajevo or Belgrade uh, at a very high altitude and you had to drop your bombs without being absolutely sure of your targeting, you were more likely to kill women and children. What you can do with drones uh, remotely piloted is you can wait so that even though you see the terrorist in the going in and out of the basement of that building, that apartment building that has 70 families in it, you can not drop the bomb. You can wait until he gets out and gets in a car and doesn't have his family or women and children with him, and then use force against him. Now, you can still raise other questions about the use of force using drones, but the argument that it's cowardly or that it's more, that it's less moral, I don't follow that argument. I think that essentially it misses the point that uh, you, by adding precision and patience, you can avoid the great danger of disproportion and failure to discriminate between civilians and non-civilians. That's our viewpoint and the way we look at it, and I think that's perfectly uh, justified. But I'm I'm talking about from the point of view of the people that we're against uh, or are fighting against, they think that we're fighting uh, unfairly so they can fight unfairly uh, with terrorism and so on and so forth. They, They can... The, the blowback. The blowback might be worse because uh, it's perceived. Well, I think there is an image of warfare as chivalrous, with two knights uh, charging at each other, and that's on equal terms, and so forth. Uh, I don't find that view of chivalry uh, as the nature of warfare very compelling. Uh, I think the argument that uh, that if you have hand-to-hand combat, uh, therefore it's equal, therefore it's good. I I don't follow the logic of that. Mm -hmm. First of all, you shouldn't be wanting to kill, but if you do have to kill, in the Augustinian sense, Mm -hmm. uh, doing it in a way which doesn't kill women and children and that doesn't kill a disproportionate number of people strikes me as more moral than whether you had chivalrous hand-to-hand combat. As for whether it leads to, uh, let's say, in the in this particular case of Islamic uh, fundamentalists uh, feeling that they uh, could use this because we had used drones, they started the killing before the drones. Mm-hmm. The drones that were used in the 90s were not armed drones. They were reconnaissance drones. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't, I, it's a, the argument you describe has often been made. To me, it uh, doesn't have a, a, a deep moral tone to it. Uh, thoughts on Jimmy Carter? <laughs> I mean, all sorts of reasons why he may or may not make the list of moral, but curious as to your thoughts. Well, I, I served in the Carter administration, and I actually, in the book, argue that... Uh, Carter is probably going to look better in the eyes of historians as time goes by. There's, there's always a tendency with time to reevaluate 
uh, earlier presidents. And I think Carter uh, is going to look better with time. He did some quite extraordinary things. Uh, he gave back the Panama Canal in his first uh, year in office at a time when there was a fear that you were going to have uh, a Latin America guerrilla movement against the United States. And he was told by his advisors, this is going to be use a lot of your political capital. It's going to be very tough. He said, we're going to get it done. And he did it. And I think you could argue that uh, he headed off something which could have been a lot worse. Similarly, on the Camp David Accords, when he brought the Israelis and the Palestinians together, Carter spent something like 13 days. And this set of, of discussions almost broke down time and time again. And Carter just sat there and worked with them until he finally got the Camp David Accords. Um, similarly, Carter took very seriously the issue of human rights. And he couldn't make a perfect human rights policy because if you have a perfect human rights policy, you don't have a foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy is trading off various uh, values and, and uh, you know, how much do I want economic progress, security, uh, expressing uh, rights and so forth. But Carter elevated the role of rights in that mix that went into foreign policy. And finally, on issues of uh, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, Carter uh, was very skeptical of nuclear uh, weapons and very skeptical of their spread. And he greatly toughened the position uh, against the spread of nuclear weapons. I would argue that a series of steps like this are often forgotten when people remember the failure to rescue the hostages in Desert One or the problems that developed with Iran in particular, uh, I mean, beyond just the, the hostage issue. So Carter is, the image of Carter, I think, uh, is not uh, uh, accurate in terms of a full assessment of it. On the other hand, Carter uh, did have a number of problems and flaws. He, he often got wrapped up in the details and didn't spend enough time thinking about the larger politics of how to make these things work. But I would, uh, I would still rank, I mean, in my ranking of the 14 presidents, he's in the middle somewhere. Hi, um, my question has to do with the moral aspect of the next president for 2021 and some of the challenges they're going to face. And it re my specific question relates to this federal commission that Senator McCain got set up called the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. And it's going to release a final report March 25th, and it's one of its primary goals was to find a mechanism for the federal government to, to inspire every youth across the country to consider doing some kind of community service or military service. Now, Along the lines of AmeriCorps, there's a bill in the Congress, both in the House and Senate. In the House, it has 188 co-sponsors, but they're all Democrats. And in the Senate, it only has seven Democrat co-sponsors because the Republicans run the Senate. So um, 
looking at the possibility of one of two president or two candidates coming president is the possibility of this idea of challenging youth to consider critical thinking along with civic values and moral aspects a possibility in 2021, or am I just dreaming? Well, I'm very sympathetic to the view that a, a national service, a public service, um, would be healthy for our democracy and would be also a way to help other countries. Um, I think the prospects of it passing through the Congress are, are very slim. But uh, I do uh, applaud the approach, and I think it's worth keeping uh, in mind of something which what a next president may want to think about. Uh, there are a number of things that, uh, though, that a next president is going to have to deal with, one of them which is climate change. And I would expect a next president, if President Trump is replaced, will... Uh, want to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. Um, if President Trump is reelected, I don't think that will happen for another four years. But there are a whole series of things which I think are, are going to be on the agenda, whether it's public service or dealing with climate change and other type issues, um, which are going to be very difficult for a moral foreign policy in the future. In fact, the last chapter of, of the book, having looked at the history uh, since 45, says what are the big challenges in the future? One of them is going to be these transnational issues like climate change, or we're now seeing it with pandemics, but you can also see it in terms of how we're going to handle cyber threats and artificial intelligence and so forth. So there's a lot on the agenda and we're going to have to want uh, to uh, get the American people to see this in these broader terms. Right now, the great danger I see is that uh, we're so busy vilifying China uh, that we're failing to see that while you can have a, a, a difference with China on some matters, for example, the South China Sea, you're not going to solve the climate problem without cooperating with China. And the American people are going to have to learn, and a president is going to have to help uh, bring them to the point of view where they realize that you're going to have to hold two different ideas in mind at the same time, cooperation and competition simultaneously. Or what uh, Lyndon Johnson once said, uh, walking and chewing gum at the same time. We're not very good at that. We want it to be either or, black or white. Most of the hard questions that are going to f face a next president are going to require those issues that are more in the middle. Uh, there's a statement that goes something like uh, morality binds and blinds. And I would like to, if, if you agree with that, I would like to uh, go to the case that you mentioned about the Iraq war there were moral, as you stated, moral assumptions, uh, and, and then there were actions that were to be taken. And the evidence that was available to support the actions, there were some, but there were many that contradicted the assumptions that were based on the morality. What the, what the blinding occurred when a lot of those evidences 
were ignored. People who supported them, in many cases, were fired, as you, you probably very well know. So there's a problem with morality when, when it's carried to the extent where it blinds you to the evidence out there, and there's a big danger in, in doing that. Oh, I agree with that. I think one shouldn't assume that because somebody makes a moral statement or has moral intentions uh, that they're going to make a basic moral judgment. And that's why I was pressing so hard for this idea that you need three-dimensional judgments. So to go back to your point about um, Iraq, uh, I do think uh, that President George W. Bush had moral intentions, but I think the, as you put it, morality blinds and binds. And uh, I meant he was not able to do the full assessment about the means and the unintended consequences that would have gone into a true moral judgment. So, I, I mean, the whole point of my book is to say that not that morality not that morality matters, but statements of morality or moralism, as I call it, is not the same as morality judged in all three dimensions. And the Iraq case is, I think, a, a good example of what you just said. I was glad to hear you mention uh, climate change as one of the issues facing the next administration and the current administration. And I'm curious, uh, in a number of cases, you've talked about relatively acute foreign policy issues, uh, issues of military um, intervention or to bomb or not bomb. But I'm curious when dealing with something as profound as climate change, whether the current tools, such as the Paris Climate Change uh, Accords, they may be insufficient because they don't actually have a lot of legal teeth to them. Is there a role for a, a president or a federal government to take a more aggressive uh, action in that space as the moral thing to do? And and should we start evaluating leaders on that, um, given that sort of long shadow of history argument you were making? Yes, I think very much so. And um, let me take you back to... Uh, the first year of the Obama administration, uh, the United States and China had very different views on climate and what should be done. It was purely competitive. And uh, when the, the United Nations held the Conference of the Parties uh, that uh, uh, in Copenhagen uh, that year, uh, the U.S. and China were at loggerheads. Over the next few years, Obama worked closely uh, with the Chinese to develop a common position. And when you got to Paris in 2015, you were able to get the U.S. and China on the same page about an approach to dealing with climate change. That's the kind of progress that we need. And that occurred at the same time that we were resisting or objecting to China's creating artificial islands in the South China Sea and claiming territorial seas to go with them. And so we sent naval ships through these zones that China was claiming, which are not legal under the law of the sea treaty as determined by the tribunal in The Hague. So we were able to object to some things China was doing relating to 
a global commons, freedom of the sea. At the same time, we were able to work with China to develop common principles of how we're going to deal with another global commons, which was the climate issue. And that's what I meant earlier when I said we've got to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. We're going to have to learn to work with China on some things while we compete with them on other things. But the danger I see is that we want to bifurcate things. We want to simplify. So China is either the new enemy in a new Cold War or it's something that we're warm and fuzzy about. We're going to have to, in fact, be able to do both at the same time. And the climate issue is, is I think, uh, the most telling of the of the cases, though, frankly, right now, the ability to cooperate on pandemics uh, is very much in the forefront of people's minds. A slightly more philosophical question, given how how many presidents you've you've investigated, have you ever? Do you have an example of someone who's come into office with, I don't know, let's just say a, a, a tenuous relationship with morality, and, and somehow, given the gravity of the office, um, has have they been able to like turn it around? Is it? I, I mean, I say that somewhat somewhat humorously, but. I mean, have you have you had examples where people realize they've got to up their game, or do you just enter and leave office with what you've got? No, I think you can see um, uh, on-the-job learning if you want. Um, frankly, the the uh, the way that George W. Bush, who I've been very critical of this evening, the way he improved in his second term compared to his first term is a case in point. Um, uh, Bush 43 uh, developed a program for dealing with disease in Africa, which was uh, truly a broad and important humanitarian approach. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, he also became more restrained in terms of the way he approached the use of force in his second term. Uh, so I, I, I believe that you could see in the progress from his first to his second term, which you might call on-the-job learning. Uh, and similarly, the case I gave you earlier of Harry Truman was rather rapid on-the-job learning. When Truman became president, he didn't know much about atomic bombs. It had been a secret, the Manhattan Project, and Roosevelt never told Truman much of anything. He picked Truman just for political convenience uh, to get the ticket uh, balanced the way he wanted it. And Truman didn't know about the details of the Manhattan Project. When he became president, uh, he was faced with a decision which is pretty much en route. General Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, uh, compared Truman to a boy who's put on a toboggan that's already going downhill. In principle, he could have jumped off and maybe stopped the toboggan, pretty unlikely. But the fact that after he saw what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, that he said, no, I'm not going to let you use the third bomb, which was being readied uh, by the Air Force for dropping on Japan, uh, that's pretty rapid on-the-job learning. So I, I think that presidents do develop uh, or their moral consciousness, as well as their experience, can develop on the job. Thank you. I've enjoyed listening to you tonight. I wanted to ask you, 
So Churchill said uh, something about history is written by the victorious. And you used three variables, if you will, to to come to your outcome. Um, the motive, the means, and the consequences. Um, I've always heard the end justifies the means, so I'm wondering in this mathematical formula that you have used to evaluate these presidents, were each of these variables given equal weight, or was the consequences really the one that mattered the most? No, I think uh, you're, you're, it's a very important question. I don't think there is any way to give equal weight or to have a mathematical formula. I think what you find is that uh, as you try to balance these, you wind up with situations that uh, Henry Kissinger once said are in the 51 to 49 uh, range. In other words, that you're that when you add up your assessments on these, you're stuck with cases where, you know, you can say, say this is absolutely clear. Um, on the other hand, because something's 5149 doesn't mean that you blur it and say it's all the same or it's all a wash. And, but it, I think when you make these historical judgments, uh, you have to retain a sense of humility which is that your own assessments may change over time. I know mine have over time. As you develop or discover new information or as circumstances change so that you look at historical events from a slightly different perspective, you may find that the weighting that you gave five years ago or five months ago is a little different. So I'm careful not to give a precise mathematical formula but to say you have to try to discuss and weight these as best you can. And you can't always get an answer that everybody agrees on. Uh, uh, but the important thing is that you make the effort to try to assess in three dimensions and not just fall for the simplistic rhetoric that uh, it sounds good, therefore it's good, or we did it, therefore it's good. That's what I'm trying to, to get away from. Um, um, back to uh, the war uh, wars. Uh, wars have been going on since the beginning of time, but um, I think that um, morally, wars should be fought either in self defense of human life or human rights. And uh, since, uh, at least in our country, since World War II, I don't think that that's been the case in the multiple military actions that we've had. And um, the the thing is, is that uh, right now, the whole justification is, does, does the justification that it's good for our country, it's good for our corporate interests, um, that sort of thing, does that justify... Uh, a war, which basically is an extrapolation of murder at a, a much higher level. And on a second thought to that is the fact that, back to the drone thing, one of the critics uh, of you know the drone technology is the fact that it dehumanizes people. It removes um, the person who's perpetrating or using the drone and desensitizes them from what they're actually doing. And it's kind of like social media does with bullying. People are saying things and hurting each other on social media that they would never do face-to-face, and it removes the humanity of that. And that's some of the criticism of using 
um, you know, remote warfare. Uh, so, you know, I'm just saying, you know, if you can kind of, you know, comment on those two things. Well, let me take them in reverse order. On the on the drones, um, I uh, the evidence that we have of the effect on drone pilots who stare at these screens and then finally agree to using a remote weapon which kills somebody, the evidence that it dehumanizes them is not the case. Many of them are quite traumatized by this if you do it day after day. So the argument that you that you become anesthetized, if that's what dehumanizing means, uh, there's that what we've seen of psychological studies of of drone pilots, I mean, the people who remotely pilot the drone, is that it's not dehumanizing. The dehumanizing of drones that worries me is quite literally dehumanizing. In other words, if you're going to have drones guided by artificial intelligence in which an algorithm decides when to strike, uh, that worries me far more, and that's the part of drones that raises major moral questions in my mind. Uh, if I have a human being uh, capable of compassion, uh, I think I can avoid dehumanization. If I have a algorithm uh, which is making these decisions, that's much harder to, to control. Uh, on the first question of the, uh, the war per se, uh, I think we should be avoiding war as much as possible, and I don't think that's always been the case. But notice in your uh, question that uh, you raised, uh, you said war for self-defense or for human rights, and that raises the very important question of humanitarian intervention. In other words, to what extent uh, if if it's a war of self-defense, it fits the Augustinian model, the international uh, humanitarian law, and so forth. It, it you know it it fits. What about when you're saving somebody else, and it's not your own self-defense, but you're defending somebody else? For example, in Nineteen, I mean, in 2011, uh, when uh, Muammar Gaddafi was threatening to uh, attack citizens of Benghazi uh, in eastern Libya, uh, the Obama administration went to the UN, got a Chapter 7 resolution under the Security Council, which authorized the use of force against Gaddafi under what's called the, res uh, the, the uh, Responsibility for Peace uh, resolution. But the trouble with that is that the, what started out as protecting the citizens in Benghazi morphed into regime change, getting rid of Gaddafi, and it wasn't followed up by a way to restructure Libya. And the net result is an awful lot of deaths in Libya. But even more, it meant that when Syria came along, it was impossible to get the Russians and the Chinese to vote for a resolution 
under responsibility to protect to try to protect citizens from Assad because they said you already used that in Libya and it went badly and we're not going to allow it again. So the Russians vetoed every resolution to try to help in Syria. And that's where the hardest problems are. It wasn't self-defense. It was defense of others. And the moral issues there are particularly difficult. Uh, the It doesn't mean you, you do nothing, but it does mean that uh, you have to be awfully careful that when you do something, you don't make things worse rather than better. Unintended consequences are typical of all complex social phenomena, and particularly in foreign affairs. And the question is, how well did you think through the unintended consequences and the prospects that things would go wrong? And the failure to think those things through carefully is culpable negligence, which is immoral. But the point is that I agree with you, the less war, the better. Most of the wars that we fought recently have not been wars of self-defense. But in deciding whether to go to war, where we've often cited doing things in favor of human rights or other people, uh, we made some pretty bad mistakes. You mentioned the uh, international humanitarian law, or what used to be called, I guess, yes. the law of armed conflict and the associated norms. If you look back over recent decades, in some respects, it seems like thinking about the laws of war has gotten more sophisticated and people are more sensitive to issues like proportionality that you mentioned before. On the other hand, there seem to be really glaring exceptions over in recent years to protagonists um, adhering to you know established rules of war. So I'm asking whether you're sort of optimistic or pessimistic about where we are with regard to the moral um, waging of, of conflicts. Well, there may be something to be said that there are cycles in this uh, uh, issues of morality. Uh, in World War II, uh, the norms of not killing civilians and of keeping proportionality vanished with the bombing of cities. And uh, long before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the firebombing of Tokyo or the bombing, firebombing of Dresden, for example, uh, had blurred this important distinction that had grown up over the ages uh, about proportion and discrimination. But interestingly enough, uh, in the post-World War II period, uh, we began to restore those norms. And part of what Truman was doing when he refused to give MacArthur permission to bomb Chinese cities was to restore some of those norms. Um, and I think in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, when you had the, uh, the Senate hearings chaired by Senator Church of Idaho and others, where we decided there were certain behaviors which we were not going to continue, such as assassinating uh, foreign leaders, which we had tried to do in the Cold War. Uh, and President Ford uh, basically issued an executive order saying, no, we're giving that up. 
that was a turn back to a, if you want, a, a set of norms or morality. Uh, I think that was violated in the recent case of, uh, of uh, our attack on, on a high Iranian official in Baghdad. Um, and I don't know whether that means we're going to go back to a policy of assassinations or not. But it may be that instead of an onward, upward progress on moral issues, that we tend to have a, uh, a more of a, a series of cyclical changes in, in public opinions on and practices on morality. I mean, there's so much material. Uh, we've, we've gotten... Uh through the entire hour without mentioning Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan with their two-term presidencies. I just thought I'd throw their names in there. Oh, they're in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're in the book. But uh, I think, I don't, I don't know what the background on that uh, is, but uh, I thought it was very interesting the way Clinton used the holding out the Beijing Olympics in 2008 to try to modify uh, their behavior towards uh, Taiwan in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Those, and of course, Iran-Contra. But we don't have time to cover everything, but the book does, right? Right. <laughs> and the book is available. So thank you very much, uh, Joe. And uh, Thank you. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for coming.